Heavenly Father, thank you for the great truths of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that because the tomb is empty and because he lives, we have a very believable gospel. And Jesus Christ is indeed the resurrection and the life. Thank you, Father, that it all happened according to the scripture and therefore we have a reliable word of God in our hands today. It happened just the way the word said it would happen. Father, grow our confidence today. Show us the practical application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives today. Thank you, Father, that we can be risen with Christ and we can identify not only in the death and the burial, but also in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And that we can, can go from here to, to walk in newness of life today because of the resurrection. Teach us and grow us and challenge us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had the, I want to say the joy and the privilege of, of building a new home. It's a lot of work to build a house, do you know that? And I don't know what you think about when it comes to building a house. I know when we built our home in 2000, um, we, uh, particularly uh, I, took a big jump off a cliff and was my own general contractor and ended up hands-on in a lot of ways building the house. And, and while I was worried about a lot of things that had to do with infrastructure, Janet was thinking about what? What's this house going to look like? And she felt responsible to, to get things just right for the new house. And she could picture where the pictures would hang and which rooms would have wallpaper and which rooms would have hardwood flooring and then what the fabric of the furniture would look like. And all the while, I couldn't care less about that. And I was busy down in a hole, drilling and blasting... And paying attention to rebar. You know, when, when you build a house, I don't want to be negative or unappreciative of what that house looks like when it's done. And I've said many times that if it weren't for Janet, I'd probably be living down at the rescue mission. <laughs> but it really doesn't matter what the furniture in the house looks like or where you hang the pictures, or whether a wall is painted and has wallpaper, if you don't put rebar in the footers. If you don't build on a firm foundation, furniture doesn't get you much. You know that? Today, as we talk about the great topic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to ask yourself if the reality of the resurrection in your life is like furniture, something that feels good, looks good, and you really like, or if it's like foundational. Are you building your life on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or are you just decorating your life with Jesus talk? I want to show you this morning that rebar in a house is much like, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ is much like rebar in the footers of a house it is essential, it's foundational, but I want to show you that it's also very practical. 
You see, to me, when the wind blows and, and we even had an earthquake in West Virginia and the ground shakes and the snow falls heavy on the roof, I want to know in a very practical way that I can go to bed at night, shut my eyes and sleep and not worry about waking up with drywall cracked, doors that won't swing open, and major infrastructure issues that will ultimately condemn our home if it weren't for the quality of the concrete and the rebar within the concrete. You don't think about it. You don't take pictures of it. You don't Facebook pictures of the rebar to your friends at your new home. You Facebook pictures of your new furniture. You moan and groan at how much it costs, but you'll pay lots of money for reupholstery. It's a new house after all. We have to have a new look. And I want to challenge us that though we don't often pay a lot of attention to it, The most important thing about our spiritual home is whether it's foundationally established on the doctrines of the Word of God, chief among whom is the doctrine of the resurrection, which is the doctrine of the resurrection. I want to show you that it's an essential doctrine, but I want to show you that it's a very practical doctrine. Let's begin with the practical this morning, shall we? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ practically apply to my life today? You know that it's theological. You know that it's woven throughout the scriptures. But how really, how really does it make a difference in my life today in a practical manner? To do so, I want you to turn to the Old Testament. I want you to turn to the Old Testament to what Bible scholars believe is the oldest book in our Bible It's the book of Job. I want you to find chapter 19. I will tell you uh, the beginning of and remind you of the beginning of this story. But as we look at the practical ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first thing that I want us to focus on this morning, number one, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is practical because it is foundational for living through life's darkest hours. It is foundational for living through life's darkest hours. If you're over the age of 30, you are beginning to realize that life just isn't a bowl of cherries. You're beginning to realize that we live in a world that is very uncertain That where I'm going to eat pizza on Saturday night becomes one of the most unimportant things about me. And you recognize that life could be taking on dimensions and proportions of which I'm not sure I can cope. In the book of Job, we have in chapter 19 the response of a man who was living through life's darkest hour. I don't know if you can recall how the book of Job begins... It's something like this. There was a man named Job. He was a man who feared God. And he lived what is now in Mesopotamia, in the Middle East. It was evidently a land that was fertile enough that Job established for himself a very productive farm or ranch. The Bible tells us that he had 
thousands of sheep, hundreds of camel, hundreds of cattle, and that his wealth was unsurpassed. We then have next in our story, in the early chapters of Job, a most remarkable scene, and it is the throne room of heaven. And it is God there in, the, in heaven, and it says that the sons of men came, or the sons of the earth came, as it were, for a review before God, and there appears the great accuser, the prince of the power of the air of this earth, Lucifer, Satan, he appears and God, seemingly out of nowhere when you read the story, says to Satan, where have you been? And we have this most interesting exchange between God and Satan in the first two chapters of Job. And he says, Satan says to God, I have been moving to and fro over the face of the earth. And here's where God seemingly out of nowhere, says to him, as though it all of a sudden occurred to God, you realize something can't just all of a sudden occur to God. Oh, as it were, by the way, did you consider my servant Job? How he fears me and he loves me and Satan comes back with his retort, Of course he loves you. Of course he fears you. You have poured out your richest blessings upon him. It says that Job had sons and daughters. It says that he so cared about their spiritual condition that when they would get together and feast and so forth, evidently Job didn't always like what he heard and didn't always like what he saw. And Job himself would go and, and carry out sacrifices before the Lord on behalf of his children, asking God to take care of his children and watch over his children. Well, the story progresses and, and God says to Satan, All right, well, if you think that the only reason that Job loves me is because I've blessed him, then go ahead and touch him. I give you permission to go ahead and cause some problems. The story then goes on, and we go back to earth. And I believe this is a true story. There's no reason to believe that it's not a literal, real story. And Job is going about his life one day, and one of his servants comes running to him. And he says, your sheep herders were out in the fields and the Chaldeans came swooping in and they killed all your servants and they took all your animals. And one thing after another begins to happen. Have you ever had days like that? It often begins with a phone call, doesn't it? It often begins with a phone call. I'm sorry to tell you. We just got back from the doctor. Uh, We're at the emergency room right now and everything is not okay. And when those phone calls come in the middle of the night, they're most difficult. It doesn't stop there because on this first round, another servant comes running to Job and all of his sons and daughters were gathered at a house feasting. And a great windstorm came and collapsed the house on him. And all of his children were killed in one swoop. I don't doubt that there's a person in this room who could bear testimony of receiving a call that a child is dead. 
but 10 children, 8 children, I forget the exact count. I read it the other day and forgot to write it down. All these children, bam, gone, gone. And Job tears his clothes. And as is the custom of grieving and mourning, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he goes over to the fire, the cold fire pit, he takes ashes and flips them up in the air and lets them fall down on him. And it's just a, it's like, oh, and he falls on his face. But you know what he says? The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan comes back before God. God says, see my man Job, he still loves me. He's still saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan says, yeah, that's because you haven't touched his person. He's still whole. And you know round two, Job then breaks out with sores. He is so miserable. Let's read what's happening in chapter 19. Job, uh, in the middle of all this, of course, has some quote-unquote friends who come and try to figure out why all this is happening and they don't do such a good job. Notice that Job is now so miserable he cannot function. His body is oozing with pus. He is so sick, no doubt racked with fever. And his conclusion is, beginning with verse 13... That he has put my brothers far from me. His brothers won't even come visit him. And those who knew me, this is 1913. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My closest friends have forgotten me. He's so sick, he can hardly think. There's nobody there for encouragement. He believes himself to be all alone. Have you ever been there? In the deepest pit of despair and difficulty... The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. He was once a powerful man. Pick up that trash. Empty that wastebasket. Go get my donkey. Rake the lawn. And now it's as though he can't even get words out and his servants function and they don't even, they just avoid him. They don't even pay attention to him. It's like he doesn't even have authority over his own household. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise up, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. You see, the mindset of the day was that surely Job had done something so wrong that God could no longer hold back his judgment against him. And if God was in the process of judging Job, I'm just going to come over here away from him because I don't want that lightning to strike me too. And so there Job is. He's filthy. He's covered with sores. He's scraping himself. The story tells us that he literally broke clay pots and would scrape himself because he was so driven by the the skin irritation that he got some momentary relief by scraping himself. And then evidently after he would open up the 
sores by scraping himself. He would sit down, couldn't even move, and the dogs would then come and lick him, and it brought some relief. This is a wretched, miserable man. This is a man who's gone from the pinnacle to the pit. This is a man who has lost everything. He's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. In one, at one point, his wife looks at him. Lovely wife that she is. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's a wretched man. He says... In verse 20, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. He's lost all his weight and I have escaped. Here's the origin of this saying that is familiar. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? All right, we find Job now at the point of his most wretched, miserable state. I don't have all the answers for this puzzling book, but it's at this point of lowest degree that Job then wants to make a statement and watch what this statement is. Verse 23, Oh, that my words were written, and oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. I want to say something that I want preserved. Little did he know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God's sovereign design for putting together the scripture, that his words were preserved even more so than being chiseled in stone. They were preserved in the eternal word of God. He had no idea, I think, at the moment that that's what was happening and he says this, in other words, even though my life has fallen apart, even though I have lost my children, I've lost my property, I'm, I'm totally lost, my, my health is shot, my wife can't even stand to be close to me, my breath stinks so bad, the only relief I find is dogs licking my sores, I want this chiseled in stone, I know one thing, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day He will stand upon the earth. Not only is He a living Redeemer, but He's a returning Redeemer. And one day, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet... There will be a bodily resurrection because look what he says. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, even though my heart faints within me. I don't know everything that's going on inside of Job. But it appears to me that in the middle of the pit of misery in his life, as he is dealing with life's darkest moments, and he's in the darkest hours he's ever experienced in his life, that foundational to his life, embedded in the rebar of the foundation of his life, was the hope that no matter how bad it gets here, no matter when I die, how I die, that one day I'm going to stand and see my Redeemer face to face with my own eyes with a bodily resurrection. 
How did Job have that information? If this is written even before the time of Abraham, which many Bible students believe, it is several thousand years before Jesus will come and be born of Mary. And yet, through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, somehow God had revealed to Job, a man of faith, that he would be redeemed from this body of death. Redeemed means to be bought back, bought out of, and set free. In life's darkest hour, foundational to me, when, when my hope is hopeless, I take hope in the fact that I have a Redeemer who lives. Let's bring this to our lives now, because we have hospitals, and we have medicine, And maybe there's parts in the world where people would still respond and end up in a condition like Job with broken down health and sores and broken body. We would go to the hospital and be quite comfortable. We wouldn't be scraping ourselves. But what a picture of misery he is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is hope for the hopeless in life's darkest hours. As you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's take this a step further and bring it close to home. My phone rang Friday morning, this Friday morning, about 48 hours ago. It was one of my former students out of my youth group who's been a youth pastor. He's spoken here. His name is Scott Bradley. Scott's in Lynchburg at Liberty University working on his master's degree in counseling right now. He always calls me Marceau. Hey, Marceau, you got a minute? His voice was quiet. I knew something was wrong. I thought, oh, man, those phone calls. He said, I need to talk to you. He said, this morning during the night, let me back up and put it in context. One of the seasons of Scott's ministry life was a five-year stint out of college, finished an internship with me, helped place him in a church in the west side of Chicago. And there he served as a youth pastor, and that was a rich five-year season of ministry. And he had about 20, 25 teenagers that he really effectively ministered in, in that little Bible church during that time. He also met his wife there at that time, and then they ended up moving and going to the mission field. The impact that Scott had on those young people at that little Bible church has been so great that through the years, as they have matured, he has been called back repeatedly to do their weddings. All those several dozen young people, a couple, couple three dozen young people that were so close and went through high school with Scott as their youth pastor. He said, Marceau, this morning at about two o'clock in the morning, I don't know if you remember him, you've met him, he said, James Sauter was his name, age 28. He's an Illinois state trooper. He was in his squad car on the side of I-295 in Chicago, and a tractor trailer came from behind and just wiped him out. 
He said, you can click on to WGN, and I did, and there it was. The whole front of the tractor trailer was burned out. Underneath the front bumper appeared to be the remains of the squad car. It must have traveled several hundred feet, at least, down the highway, and then it was all on fire. And this young police officer, Scott said, I just did his wedding a couple years ago. He's been calling me for accountability. We've been talking. He's gone. He said, I've been on the phone with the police too. He said, Marceau, I might have to do this funeral. I've never done a funeral before. What do I do? I clicked on WGN and I noticed uh, some footage. You know how the TV cameras follow people around and there was some repeated footage and they showed this man, evidently his young wife, leaving a car and walking up to her front door and they repeated that, cycled that through a couple times. All right, so you're his mom and dad. So you're his wife. They didn't have children. 28 years old. You get the phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's over. It's gone. He's burned up. What are you going to do in that situation? What are you going to do? Hopefully you have nice furniture draped around your life, feel-good furniture. Or are you building your life foundationally upon some realities so that you have foundational help Living through life's darkest hours. Hope for the hopeless. Comfort for the comfortless, the resurrection is. Very quickly, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me show you the great hope of the believer. As difficult as these hours can be. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We do not want you to be ignorant, uninformed, uneducated about those who are asleep. Asleep, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, is a word for believers in the Lord Christ who have died. You need to understand that the Apostle Paul has been to the church at Thessalonica. He has taught them that the Lord's return is the next item on God's agenda and that we should live in such a way that we're waiting for his return. And then Paul leaves and goes on his further missionary journeys and church planting. And what happens is some of the believers in Christ in the Thessalonian church got sick and died or got ran over by chariots. They died. And all of a sudden there's confusion among the believers in Christ at Thessalonica. And the church at Thessalonica doesn't know what to do with this. Wait a minute. This was my loved one. We're waiting for the return of Christ. We don't want our loved one. This was my big brother. This was my little sister. This is my mom. This is my dad. I want them to go be with Christ also. Paul taught us that Jesus was coming and we're to live in such a way that we're prepared for his return. And so Paul has to write a letter and further explain to them not to panic. Don't panic. In fact, don't even grieve as those who have no hope. Look what he says. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, there's two kinds of people in the world. People who grieve over their loved one's grave with no hope of ever seeing them again, no hope of eternal life in Christ, no hope of spending eternity in heaven. And there's those who come alongside the casket and sing hymns like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And so he says, do not grieve as others who have no hope. 
Listen, here it is, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Our Lord Jesus taught us this. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry. It's a shout, a command. And with the voice of the archangel. And there will be a sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive when this coming happens, who are left... We then will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, the strangest words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I do not want to minimize the grief of parents in a church and a 28-year-old bride. And it's unimaginable the grief that that young woman's going through. But I said to Scott, does James know the Lord? Is he a born again? He said, man, I led him to Christ. Oh, that changes everything. That changes everything because based upon the fact that verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, then even through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Let's say the Lord returns in the future here. The next time that young bride, according to the scripture, will see her husband is in the air if we're alive when the coming of the Lord happens and occurs. Paul says, based upon the fact that Jesus is alive and resurrected, there will be a resurrection of the dead in Christ. Right now, their spirit is in heaven with God. And when the time comes for Jesus to return for his church, he's going to bring back with him all of the saints who have died in Christ. And then, strangely enough, there will be a resurrection of their earthly body from wherever it is, in whatever state of decay it is in. God will miraculously resurrect the body. Their bodies will join with their spirit. They will come with Jesus in the air. And that will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air together with them. I don't know how that works exactly. But I'm telling you that because of this, the Apostle Paul says, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Scott, you cannot say anything that will really take away the grief and the loss. Go put your arms around them and cry with them. But when you get a chance, remind them that he's just asleep. And there's a resurrection day coming. And that I will see my dad again. And I will see my mother again. And I will see my brother again. And they will come up out of that sand in southern Michigan. And they're going to be reunited with their spirit. And they're going to have a new body instantaneously created, I take it. And we're going to be caught up together to meet them in the air if we're here. Or if we're ones that are resurrected out of the grave. And we are to find great hope. And we are to comfort one another with these words. You get that phone call, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. But it's not the end. It's not over. 
And we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Foundational to my life, foundational for living through life's darkest hours is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without taking near that much time, let me just suggest two other practical and essential ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts our lives. First of all, it is foundational for living through life's darkest moments. In Job, we have hope for the hopeless. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have comfort for the comfortless. That we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Turn to Acts chapter 2, please. And let me suggest another practical way that the resurrection of Jesus Christ applies to our lives today. We live in a time of skepticism towards the Word of God. We live at a time when we are, as believers in the Lord Christ and Bible-believing Christians, marginalized and uh, criticized and um, uh, considered uh, very much less than intellectual. I want you, though, to see that it is the resurrection of Christ upon which you can stand as foundational number two for proving our Lord's boldest claim. The resurrection of Christ is also foundational for proving our Lord's boldest claim. What did he claim? He claimed that he alone is the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in him, even though he die, yet shall he live. How good would that promise have been in John eleven twenty five? I'm the resurrection and the life, if he himself had never resurrected. But all of history shows, all of scripture shows, the irrefutable evidence of the fact that he indeed, according to the scriptures, rose the third day, cementing and solidifying his message. We fast forward then, 40 days after Jesus Resurrection. 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. They watched him go into heaven. They were promised that he would, in the same way he went up into heaven, come back down. And they literally watched him with their own eyes go up into a cloud into heaven. And the angel said, he will come back exactly in the same way. So I take that to be in the sky, in a cloud right there. Physically, you can see it. It's not a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing. And they're in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit now comes upon them, and there's people from all over the world, and there they are gathered in Jerusalem, and Peter begins to preach, and many of the people in Jerusalem at this time are skeptics. In fact, understand this, many of the people in Jerusalem at this time are people who scream for Barabbas. And I want to show you quickly what Peter does to convince them. That our Lord's boldest claim, that he alone was Messiah, that he's the resurrection and life was true. Let me just read Peter's message is recorded for us in Acts 2. Look what it says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, this is the Apostle Peter preaching 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Okay, he's preaching to an audience that doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the first thing he mentions is, you know that he healed the blind, raised the dead, healed lame people, and you saw it yourself. They, he, they had to be quiet because big crowds followed him around and watched him do it. You know that he did it. Okay, that's one little checkpoint. God did mighty works through him. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. In other words, you screamed, you people that Peter's preaching to, you people scream for him to be crucified. 
And Roman soldiers, these lawless ogres, took him and nailed him to a cross. But God did what? Verse 24. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, look, it was not possible for him to be held by it. You crucified him. He died, but he rose again. And there's, it is impossible for God to be dead. He then is going to go to the Psalms, which many of these people knew very well. And he's going to show them that when David wrote Psalm 16, he really wasn't writing about himself. He was writing prophetically about Jesus. For David, verse 25 says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might, may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says to the crowd, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried just like Lenin. He's in a tomb and he's within his, in his tomb with us today. We can go to David's tomb and we can find him. Okay? Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Remember 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen by 500, and then he was seen by the 12, and so forth. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. They had seen the fire, tongues of fire come down earlier in the chapter. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is the whole crux of Peter's argument? Let all of Israel know Peter has an audience of skeptics and he preaches to them none other, no other doctrine than what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need to let your boat get rocked by skeptics. They don't have answers to a lot of questions either. We have the evidence of Scripture we have the evidence of the life change of the apostles. We have the evidence of the power of the gospel to change a life. And Peter uses the resurrection of Jesus Christ as foundational to proving our Lord's boldest claim that he was the Messiah. Foundational for living through life's darkest hours. I find comfort in the fact that my Redeemer lives. I find hope in the fact that I do not have to grieve like those who have no hope. Foundational for proving our Lord's claims. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't David he was talking about. It was Jesus he was talking about. As we close, flip over to Romans chapter 3. And let's walk down what we call the Romans road briefly. 
It'll only take a couple minutes and then we're done. And I want to show you the third very essential way that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important to us. Not only is it foundational for living through life's darkest hours, the resurrection is foundational for proving our Lord's boldest claims. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, number three, foundational for solving the world's greatest need. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational for solving the world's greatest need. You know what the greatest need of the world is? Romans 3.23. You know what it says? It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We call this the Romans road that I'm going to walk you down right now. We're going to just flip our pages through Romans. The world's greatest need is the fact that they are sinners and they cannot be forgiven on their own. For all have sinned. We turn to Romans 6.23 and look what it says. Romans 6.23 says, Not only are we all sinners, but our sin earns for us death. Say death. 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 That's a real problem. There's nothing I can do to solve my own sin problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23. For the wages of that sin is death... But then notice that there's a but in the middle of the sentence. But the free gift of God is eternal life in whom? In Christ Jesus our Lord. All have sinned. The wages of that sin earns me death. But God interrupts it and says that through Jesus Christ there is eternal life. Look at Romans 5.8. Look backwards to chapter 5 and look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. He died to pay the penalty for our sin that we could do nothing about. We could not do enough penance. We could not suffer enough to pay the price for our sin so that a holy God could let us into his heaven. Now turn to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. All have sinned. The wages of that sin is death. But God provides eternal life through Jesus Christ, and God loved us even while we were still sinners, and now enter the resurrection. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between people, Jews or Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's it based on? It's not based on some piece of furniture. It's based on the infrastructure The foundational reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How is the resurrection practical today? It's foundational for living through life's darkest hours. Hope for the hopeless. Comfort for the comfortless. It's foundational for proving our Lord's boldest claim that he was God. Peter proves it through the resurrection. It's foundational for solving my greatest need, the world's greatest need. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, this Easter Sunday, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior?
Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord of the universe? Have you, have you admitted your sinfulness and recognized that he alone died on the cross for you, but he didn't stay dead and he rose again, triumphant over the grave, proving his message? If not, this hour, this moment, today, you can be saved from your sin. You can acknowledge that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. And after he was dead three days, he rose again to prove that he was who he said he was. And by putting your faith and trust in Christ alone, you will be saved. Nothing I can do of my own merit, only by grace through faith in what Christ did for me, substituting in, dying for me, paying the penalty for my sin, believing that he rose from the dead and that he is God. You'll be saved. Let's bow our heads, please. We're going to conclude singing a great hymn of the resurrection. And before we conclude with that hymn, let me just ask you to quietly examine your heart. Have you ever confessed with your mouth that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's God in the flesh? Have you ever confessed with your mouth that you know you're a sinner? Have you ever confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you know that he's for real? Have you ever by faith placed your sin upon him at the foot of the cross, spiritually speaking, and received his forgiveness and become a new creation in Christ? Why don't you do that right now? If the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart and you recognize today that the resurrection is real, that Jesus is who he said he was, that your sin needs forgiven through what he did at the cross. Why don't you just do that? Father, I admit my sinfulness. I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you raised him from the dead. Please forgive me of my sin in Jesus' name. He'll make you his child. Your sin will be forgiven. You'll be justified. Father, this Resurrection Sunday, accomplish your purposes, challenge hearts. Father, if there's those here today who are seeking your face, give them an understanding, open their minds to the truths of what it means to be a sinner and to be standing before a holy God, unable to help themselves, but for the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ who came and went to the cross and died, was buried, but rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Father, we just thank you for the comfort that we find in the resurrection I pray that it will be foundational to all of our lives, and very practically speaking, we will not live as those who have no hope, but we will live as those who have a risen, returning Redeemer. It's in his name, our Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.